Welcome everybody to the second episode of the Lowdown Society podcast. Today we have Mr. Amos Heller with us, who is a fine national bass player. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. He has the biggest gig in the world, which is being dad to three young kids. <laughs> and then he also plays bass for Taylor Swift. But that's a side note. In, in my copious spare time. <laughs> yeah. Before even seeing a Taylor show, the first thing I noticed about you was a very, very heavy metal presence. Okay. Like an unapologetic, muscular approach to the instrument oh, that thanks. in Nashville you don't really see much. At the Taylor Swift show I saw, you were down like Robert Trujillo playing the pop country <laughs> proudly. And uh, so my first question, which we've never really, really talked about yeah. much, is what got you into playing bass and what age and what bands and all that? Well, I, I had the really good fortune to go to a public school system in Virginia where I'm from with a really well-funded orchestra that was taught by people who were really enthusiastic and kind of relentless about quality with in in the best way possible without making it sound like a Spartan boot camp they they wanted to pitch fastballs they wanted us playing pieces the teachers did wanted us playing pieces that were were difficult that were at high levels when we went to competitions we would compete at you know grade 5 and 6 the highest ones there were and man, I feel like for me, there was almost no substitute for just being surrounded by a culture of excellence from what the teachers were expecting to what the kid sitting next to you was capable of on his instrument. No, no amount of your parent wagging their finger at you, telling you to practice is going to push you as hard as, I don't know, getting your butt kicked at, an, at the, uh, what, what would they call it? I can't remember what the auditions for what, what chair you would be in the upcoming concert. Yeah. And we did them in front of the whole class. And Man, that was a motivator when the guy who went before you played beautifully and you just kind of were sawing at your upright tentatively. You're like, I don't want to feel that again. I, yeah. want to, I want to be as good as everybody else is around me. So that was how I got into being an instrumentalist was through playing classical music in the orchestra. Gosh, I have to give my older brother credit because he used to drive me to school blasting and justice for all in his car. And something about like, you know, his speakers were about to give out and he would just play it as loud as possible. You could hear the the, the music just woofing and breaking up. And I don't know, man, that was just, I was just like, what is this? What is this? This is the most amazing stuff I'd ever heard. It was so technical and so unapologetic about everything. And the lyrics were about being misunderstood and the double was like two kick drums. Why? How, how is that even possible? I was just so flabbergasted by the entire thing. And I was blown away by the, just the power of the music and what it sounded like. So as quickly as possible, I joined a metal band. You're playing classical music with those big, romantic, challenging melodies, mm -hmm. and then you're listening to heavy metal at the same time. Mm -hmm. That's very much a Scandinavian thing. I oh, feel like right I on. feel like that, that was kind <laughs> of that. Was, a lot of the metal bands over where I'm from is still they write more so than American metal bands. They write more of from like a Wagner opera kind of melodic. Sure. Oh yeah. You know, except for Metallica, what kind of metal? happened after that for you man what once i discovered vulgar display of power yeah. uh yeah. pantera's record 1991 or 92 whatever that is that blew me away it really did because there was not only that 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 drive and that power there was so much pocket yeah. and so much tone like for me in that in that record specifically like everywhere you turn there's something awesome like i loved 
Phil's voice and how unhinged he sounded, but there was just enough melody in there. You could you kind of sing along to it. Like there was something yeah. there that held it together cohesively. The way Dime's guitar sounded, I spent most of I feel like my conscious life chasing Rex's bass tone off that record. I loved it. It was so articulate and had all this grind and and body. And then the way the way the drums sounded, the arrangements of the songs themselves and. I even liked in the weirdest way that when I tried to pick up a bass and play along, I couldn't even get figure out what tuning they were in. It, it wasn't until I did a, it was the Metal metal Fest or whatever they called it, a show here in Nashville three or four months ago with a couple with a couple of studio, with uh, Jerry Rowe and Derek Wells, who yeah. were like, we're going to do this like for real, let's do it, album keys. And so I went on the internet and figured out what tuning they were in and really like chased after the tone. It's like, man, it took most of the skills and abilities I've acquired in my years of being a professional to try to get on the level of being able to reproduce that record. Like, but it's, it's, it was really fun to play that because that's kind of been a pole star for me in a very weird way. Yeah, even on a, on a gig with Taylor Swift, some appreciable percentage of my brain, maybe 15% is like, yeah, but can we make it sound like Rex just a little bit? Absolutely. Can we, can we get a little bit of that that grind or that that same that sort of that that ring and presence that he gets on his bass that just it was so formative for me just metal in general and honestly Pantera in, in particular really really set me on a path that I've I've gone plenty of other places with it and I've gone to you know appreciate especially sort of seventies groovy country and modern pop and all that kind of stuff to me it's all just a departure from basically wanting to sound like Pantera almost all the time. There's a lot of metal that's technically challenging on mm-hmm. bass, but there's a lot of metal that isn't. It just requires <laughs> it requires great time and great tone, like a simple country song. Yeah, oh for sure. But on the other end of the spectrum. So I feel like what it teaches you more than anything, and what I appreciate about it coming up on some of the stuff you did, is it teaches you intent. Oh yeah. Oh that's a great way you to know, put it. That's like the word. It's like, well, motherfucker, here's a note. Yeah. It might only be one or two notes. Yeah. And you might be able to play them where your eleven year old son might be. It's not about the ability, it's about the intent. Oh, yeah. And, and I feel like any metal bass player that has developed a musical taste for other genres bring that intent with them. Huh, you yeah, know? that's and a I great def- way to put it. Yeah, I hear that in your I, Thanks, man. I, yeah. I definitely take that as a compliment. Well, since I've known you, I think I've seen a few things where other people have sort of interviewed you, and mm-hmm. there's some stuff on YouTube where you've answered the same questions a few times regarding your day job. Mm-hmm. But... I'm interested in, in before that, because you had a Nashville career before you got that gig. I did. You're more than welcome to name drop or whatever, but okay. I'd, I'd like to hear about what, what kind of stuff you were up to before. Oh, sure. Taylor's gig. Yeah, man. Um, I moved to Nashville in fall of 2005, kind of to, like, just at a point in my life, you know, nearly arbitrary. For me, at the point, I was like, well, I'm turning 30 soon. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, one of those big milestone birthdays. Like, what did I think my life was going to be like at 30? And I just... It didn't look like what I wanted it to look like. And the situation I was in, which which was actually, just funny now that I think about it, actually pretty fulfilling. So I was in a, like a funk soul dance band every weekend. So we were playing like Earth, Wind and & Fire and Stevie Wonder and stuff like that at a, at a very upper crusty kind of white bread steakhouse outside of Cincinnati. And it was really fun and really, really active and playing all those great lines. That's and, college for yeah, bass players. Yeah. Oh, no, it absolutely was. And it's it's funny to me, almost everybody I know who works in town had something like that, some steady gig playing challenging music where, I mean, that that changed physically the way that I play, the way that I hold my bass. We were playing for four hours, very active stuff. I would go home with my shoulders, hands, and back just killing me. And I was like, I just have to adjust and that, you know, 
my my literal physical approach. But I was doing that, and I had a like a fusion gig every other Monday. But none of that was like going anywhere. It was fun, and it was challenging. I was playing with great players, but I wasn't. I wanted to be on a tour bus. I wanted to do something bigger, professional. So I moved to Nashville, and just opened my eyes and ears as much as I as I possibly could. Like tried to find people who were doing what I was, what I wanted to be doing. Ask them dumb questions. Figure out. Try to try to pick up on what people who were playing professionally. What are they? I don't even that down to like their personality. What sort of people are these? Am I one of these people? You know, I have to figure this out. I don't know. Is it is it hyper competitive and and negative? Am I going to have to become somebody I don't really like in order to do this? Or as I was very happy to find, is it guys who look out for each other, who are friendly and funny and dark and sarcastic, but with a real love for everybody I know has some secret nerd passion. I was at the Loud Jam last night on the back deck with very cool musicians all talking about our favorite science fiction movies. There's just nerds everywhere. I love it no matter how cool we dress. The fact that we, the, I think we all needed music to, to even get a date. That's the, yeah. that's the nerd Oh, level. that's it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this wasn't going to happen any other way. Yeah. I got to look cool with a bass in my hands because nothing else is, is coming up <laughs> the way it's supposed to be. No, no girls think Star Wars is as cool as I do. Might as well play bass. Um, so... I just I just said yes to anything I possibly could. Uh, my probably my first name drop is that the first time I actually played on a stage in Nashville was filling in for Matt Ramsey, who's the lead singer of Old Dominion. Mm-hmm. And he and I have been friends forever. Like I knew I, he was one of the first people I met when I went to. But that was the first time I actually got on stage where someone said, "Learn my music and perform with me." That led really quickly to doing another kind of rite of passage that a lot of people I know who play country in Nashville have done, which is sort of van and trailer in the Native American casinos in the Southwest. Mm-hmm. Like doing a six night stand at the Sandia in Albuquerque. You're just doing, you're right next to the slot machines and no Playing one, on top of the bar. Yes, yes. yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah shoved over in a yeah. corner. Somebody keeps telling you to be quieter and be quieter and you're playing forever. There's two people listening, but that was it was a real education for me. It was all repertoire. It was a bunch of originals by this guy who played a very kind of classic George Strait style country, mm-hmm. and then just covers and covers and covers. So I'm learning all the actual George Strait, all the Dwight Yoakam, all the you know Devil Went Down to Georgia stuff. You have to, the compulsory routine. Did that for a while. That led to a Broadway gig down down the the shifts on Lower Broadway. It wasn't exactly an Aces time slot. We were two to six on Wednesdays. Mm-hmm. But again, that was like for me. It's like well, I'm good. I, I'm good. I I'm glad that I'm not doing this in front of a lot of people because song after song, I felt like I could be replaced with a recording that just said, I don't know. And you and the band leader just quit asking and would just take off and would just start playing a song and I'd have to figure out what chord or key he was in by counting the frets behind his capo and then looking at the angle of his thumb on the back of his acoustic guitar. He just got tired of trying to tell me the changes and just started going. Did that for a while. That... That led to my first actual artist gig, which is for Rhett Akins. For folk, folks that don't know, he was a big uh, country artist, maybe in the 90s, mid to late 90s. Who's what was his song? That Ain't My Truck? That Ain't My Truck. That's yeah. him. Yeah. Banging song. Love it. Great tune. Yeah. That comes up on Shuffle. Everyone's like, oh yeah, that's a great song. Um, so that was like the first bus gig, the first what I would consider like pro experience playing for an artist that people know the first time I ever played an arena first time I ever headlined I mean it was a it was a chili festival in Sanford Florida but still we were the headliners like that was all just, just picking up little stuff play with Red Akins for a little while 
for for how large it looms in my memory, it was actually only probably three months, maybe four. And I went right from that to playing for Josh Grayson, which is a, a yet another rite of passage. I just know his his band has a lot of turnover, so I know a lot of people who have who have played for Josh Grayson in in some uh, some and, capacity and or another. For all the listeners we might have that are in America, listen to country at all. He was did he come out of one of the television shows? He did. He yeah. was he was like a his American Idol season two. He was like a top five you know, finisher or whatever. And that was still a fairly new thing and would give you a pretty significant uh, boost in Absolutely. your career. Because the, I think the, the only other American Idol that had been crowned at that point so far was Kelly Clarkson, who, you know, had a huge career right away and is still killing it today. So it was like, people were kind of curious to see what sort of a phenomenon this would be. And so he was still riding that wave. So even a, even a top five finish could set you on a country career. His first album went gold. He had a couple of top fives. That, man, that was fun. I kind of miss that band sometimes. It was just such, it was just a total rock band. Like we had, we had a fiddle player and everything, but it was, if you came to see us, I was playing with Kevin Murphy. Um, I played with Devin Malone and Mike Meadows in that band. It was just, those, got turned into a rock band. world class. Devin is like a beacon of taste, isn't he? <laughs> Every time yeah. I hear the guy plays, like, oh, it's taste. He doesn't overplay like me. <laughs> He's a guitar player here in Nashville. Yeah. Um, Kevin Murphy, the drummer you just mentioned, mm-hmm. I don't like to get into to gossip or any of that, but he told some great bus orders from the Josh Grayson gig. <laughs> One was about putting sugar in his protein shakes, I believe. I don't know if you're Oh, heard. I was not party to that, but I heard I heard about it, yeah. <laughs> we digress. Virginia, we talked about you growing up there and how mm-hmm. it was competitive and you were around a lot of talent, mm-hmm. even on your just high school level, yeah. in your town. Mm-hmm. You didn't even have to leave town to be around severe competition, which mm-hmm. I think a lot of guys that make it to your level, their story is there wasn't enough bands in my little hometown, I had to move quickly. But mm-hmm. you come from a very fertile soil and ground of musical goodness and babies, right? Yeah. The amount of musicians in Nashville, especially rhythm section guys from Virginia, it's in their blood to me as a strange Scandinavian alien. <laughs> it's really astounding. In addition to having that classical stuff in school and your brother's metal, mm-hmm. how about country and soul and all that kind of vintage American music? Was that a big thing around where you grew up? You, it, it might have been. I have to say I don't know because at... At that time, when I was still living in, in Charlottesville, which, you know, to in a general sense, up through high school, because I graduated from high school and went to school in Ohio, I really, like, my my taste for something with either the complexity and legacy of classical music or the sort of fury and intent of metal, I didn't, I didn't have patience for anything else. I was, and it won't surprise you as somebody who's known me for a while, Subtlety is not super duper my thing. <laughs> I don't understand the appeal. Yeah. It, it takes too long for people to notice. Yeah. So I, I liked big, loud, proud music. So it took me a long time to circle back around to be blown away by the meters. Yeah. Like I would have listened to it and be like, it's not the Red Hot Chili Peppers. That was the only funk that I knew. When, yeah. when someone said funk, I was like, oh, Chili Peppers slapping the bass like crazy over somebody chinking a seven chord on a Stratocaster yeah. while somebody barks about having sex. <laughs> yeah. Which is not that far off. Slightly actually, flat the whole time. Right, yeah. Uh, so it, it, so 
My- I, I definitely came to it later. Um, I am, yeah, it's maybe halfway through college, I, I sort of showed my ass to somebody by accident by talking about the funk and the chili peppers. And they were like, dude, no. And they put on songs in the key of life for me. I was yeah. like, oh, I get it. And like, you know, so the, so it was, again, I was, I was pretty narrow. And what I think you can probably follow, probably every genre has adherence like this, but definitely with metal, it's like, if it's not metal, it's stupid. It's slow, it's lazy, it's dumb. Like, I didn't have... I had a, had a pretty extreme prejudice towards anything that wasn't metal. I loved the the insular quality of the, the group that I ran with. I had, you know, the sides of my head shaved. I wore a Pestilence t-shirt to high school. I loved it. I was very into the identity of being a metal kid and how that set me apart growing yeah. up. So I eschewed anything else. Yeah. And then I feel like very much of my life is still coming back and circling back and sort of filling in those gaps. Like... I need to learn how to play some Michael Jackson because I didn't ever blast that at home. I was just blasting Sacred Reich, you know. And then, not super transferable as I get older and my and my tastes widen. And as a professional, you're called upon to do different things. It's it, my you need a few more flavors in the soup at some point. It is possible to grow up in a southern hotbed like that and not be infused with southern traditional music, mm-hmm. which I think all of us in Europe. We have this romantic fantasy that if you grew up in Virginia or Tennessee, like there's like Johnny Cash in your drinking water and like Roy, Roy Orbison coming out of your shower head and like you know what I'm saying? Like I know it's not the fifties, yeah. but there's right, still right. that, you know. And to this day I'm always flabbergasted when I go to Memphis where a lot of this stuff has its roots. You go to, to Graceland or you go to the Sun Studios or Stack Studios and ninety percent of every tour I've ever been on Tour meaning touring group walking through the street, right, right, yeah. not musical tour, is Europeans. I always tell people like we have the Mona Lisa behind you know glass and a bunch of security and you can't touch it because it's the Mona Lisa, and you have something five hundred times more important to the culture of the world and uh-huh. to art. Yeah, okay. and it's barely appreciated by the people who live around it. And it's not really protected either. It's nine bucks and you roll into that studio and you hold Elvis's microphone. Uh-huh. As a European, not a very pretentious artsy one, I hope, but it still really offends me. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It really does. Because it's the coolest culture of the entire world. And I always, I mean, I'm very happy growing up where I grew up because I grew up on a lot of the same stuff you did. Mm-hmm. Anytime I get to talk to somebody like you about growing up in the American South and music, that's why those questions are so important to me. Well, I think it's man, it's it's really funny. It's it's it's, a, it's very interesting to hear you you point that out because now I'm like, yeah, man, we're total jerks about this. We need to. Be, <laughs> you're, you're right. It's right there. It's right. It's right there. That should be yeah. It needs to be yeah. behind plexiglass. It needs to be venerated. Man, I I don't know if it's if it's necessarily distinctly American, but I there's I don't know if it, I don't want to you know speak for my entire country, which is an increasingly difficult task no matter who you are. <laughs> uh, but there, I don't know if there, it's it's like kind of the, the the rebellious spirit, the revolutionary thing, or so much of where our roots came from. Talking completely out of my ass at this point, but it's like you you're almost cautious about venerating something too much, mm-hmm. like and and progress. Even even though, especially in the South, like like you want to talk about a place that venerates tradition. You know, people are still ready to throw tomatoes at most of the stuff on country radio because it doesn't sound like Johnny Cash. Yeah. But they ignore the idea that people wanted to throw tomatoes at Johnny Cash when he was doing it, saying, you don't, exactly. say, you don't sound country. I think there might be, maybe it's a necessary endemic part of the idea that Elvis himself was, of course, com- 
you know, very rebellious and very controversial. And in a way, it's kind of honoring him to take what he did, go, that's great, and just move on, just the next thing. Let, let's, let's progress, let's go. This is great. What, now that we're standing on his shoulders, what can we see? Yeah. And then somebody stands on your shoulders, like, next, 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 next. But I, I agree with you. There's part of it that you tend to roll your eyes at at some of the anything that's antiquated and in America that means twenty years. Yeah. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right. There's there's part of that that could be meditated on. It is important. It changed. It did. It changed the world and what people think of as music or expression or dancing, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. It was, it was kind of a big deal. And if, yeah, maybe it should just be more than nine dollars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Obviously, you've shared a lot of what you do at your current gig and and how you got the gig. But I like to try to focus on some other angles of it. You had a little clinic here in town, for mm -hmm. those of us that were lucky enough to be there, at the Warwick showroom. And you, uh, you almost slowed down your speech and you were extra intense when you said, people ask me how I got this gig. That's not important. The important thing is how I keep it. Uh -huh. And I thought that was insightful, but most of all, it was badass. If you don't mind <laughs> regurgitating a little Thanks, bit of that man. train of thought for, for people listening. Yeah, yeah, just about, yeah, I, that's, that's probably the question I get the most. If, if I, you know, somebody meets me, like if they're, if they're a fan of Taylor's music or I, I tell them who I play for, how'd you get the gig? And it's, it's a perfectly normal question. And the, the answer to that is, is very short and it's probably the same as how you got your gig and how anybody got any gig in this town that I know of is you, you worked to build and maintain a reputation and somebody who is familiar with you as a person and you're playing professionally recommended you for it. Mm -hmm. Somebody who is in a position, it could be a bass player departing the group, could be a band leader who's just fired his bass player, drummer, it doesn't matter. It's going to be somebody who is familiar with you as a person and as a player and they recommended you because they think you're a good fit. That's the, that's the answer. Which is a weekly or monthly occurrence here on yeah. some level. Oh yeah, especially in the winter. Yeah. yeah. If you want, if you listeners, if you want to get a gig in Nashville, come down in the winter and just look put together. <laughs> with, with Taylor's gig in particular, just because it's changed so much over the, over the years and what, what the band in general has been sort of tasked to reproduce live is just following her and what and what she is doing and what how her musical vision is changing, and I with with not not without growing pains, I've learned that you just you say yes to as as much as you possibly can. I guess I guess until it unless or until it just leaves your ability to do it. Like you know you want like fretless seven string two hand tapping. At that point, I just might have to hand off to somebody because I just. I, I'm trying to think of a Taylor Swift song that would require that, and it's horrifying. Um, but with when with her gig in particular, with how how she's changed genres and approaches and performance styles, for for me, I feel like the the daily concerted effort and attention that not not just me, anybody, you, anybody who's kept a gig for any any amount of time, that that's the thing that I like. I'd rather talk about, and I feel like is is the thing about being a musician is not just it's not just sort of bursting through that that last barrier and getting into the echelon where you're you're on a tour bus and there's per diem and you're making more money per night and it's and it's comfortable is to guard that and to to regard it as precious and be like well you know for me especially like I got that first gig with Red Akins I was just like desperate to stay I just want to stay here I I got I I, I popped through I got a call for a gig there's you know, emails that are coming from a manager now. And there's, you know, somebody I had to fill out a, a W-2. This feels very professional. I was desperate to make sure that everything about me was keeping pace 
with that. And man, some of that is is cultural. You just kind of want to, again the same thing I did when I moved here. You kind of keep your eyes and ears open. How is, how are things going? How does this camp operate? Every camp is different. I I got the opportunity to sub for Thomas Rhett last summer, which was a ton of fun. But that's a, it was a very different camp than the one I was used to. So, I'm you know I'm the new guy, and I'm just same as same as any other gig, kind of trying to keep my eyes open and see what what's important. Are these guys are these guys super? Is it a super tight ship, and do they keep their bus super clean? It's a little more relaxed, and they don't care. You know, like what sort of what are the rules here? And man, I just I try to treat every opportunity I get like that. I my sort of mode of thought is maybe like I'm I'm constantly auditioning for the gig. I just want to I want to keep I want to reinforce the decision that was made at some point. It could be ten years ago, five years ago, two months ago. To bring me in, I want to keep making sure that whoever did that still thinks it was a good idea. And I, I learned to. Now, I was definitely one of the bass players for a long time, especially when I was playing metal. I played with my fingers, like a like you know, like Steve Harris or Cliff Burton. I was big into that. I don't play with a pick. Playing with picks for losers. It's for people who can't hack it. I have lost any and all of that completely. If the song requires a pick, if the gig requires a pick, or a thin, bright tone or a big, fat, warm, muddy tone, something that isn't my taste, my taste just isn't as important as it is serving the song, the situation, the camp, to, to just to be a bass player. And I I will pay myself a compliment of saying I think that's why I've kept the gig as long as I have. Just to be excited about challenges, about new things, about getting your fingers around different genres or even different instruments. This song requires a short scale hollow body with flats. I hardly ever play one of those. Let's explore this thing and figure out what it is instead of just complaining it's not a P bass with rounds the entire time. But I think that's fantastic advice to show that you are as excited as you were the first week. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. And if you aren't for some reason one day on tour or to make yourself to snap out of any normalcy that the other side of your brain is trying to tell you that this is just normal now. Yeah. And go, motherfucker, no it's not. Yeah. And you don't have to, I think, be playing stadiums with Taylor. There's plenty of other gigs that uh, if you're musically happy and you respect the, the person you're backing up, it's all the same thing. Mm -hmm. And speaking of keeping it new and not be scared of changes, one thing that I personally wanted to pick your brain about right away when you got off the last Taylor tour, mm -hmm. you played with a lot of pop and R&B superstars that would mm -hmm. come out and do a show. Mm -hmm. Because Taylor's a fan, and even though she had the biggest tour, she wanted to be a fangirl. Mm -hmm. I remember playing a tiny country bar in Portland, Oregon in 2006 with a new artist on RCA called Jake Owen. Oh, yeah. And we were playing <laughs> a tiny country bar. It was his first single was out, and nobody knew about him. And we had this girl named Taylor open for us with her acoustic guitar oh, by herself in this bar. Wow. Uh, and during our sound check, she just sat there all starry-eyed and sang every word to every song of Jake's and the record had been out for like a week. Hmm. So the amount of fangirling that I saw her do when nobody was looking and the amount of just interest in music that that showed, her having her own stadium tour and inviting all her idols to come sing with her, hmm. I feel like that's the same thing. So props, oh, to, nice. props to your boss yeah, for right on. being that. Tove Lowe, the Swedish girl, was on there. Did you guys do? You guys did Mary J. Blige too? Yes. Right? 
Yeah. I mean, there were so many. If you don't mind sharing a few of those highlights and a few of oh, the, sure. a few of the, the challenges you were thrown, because if you're in rehearsal for this tour, you're holed up for weeks or months preparing every note and every move of her show. But when she, two days before it happens, says, this person's coming out, then you snap back into an extremely professional version of bar band mode, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Um, I, I have to say the the experience of getting the tour ready for, for 1989 for her last tour was was very intense for me because again like as a bass player most of the time you get you get a nice clean signal with you know decent definition and there's a pretty depending on the gig I feel like a pretty wide range of, of stuff that's that's fine if, if you're a bass player that likes it with a little with a little dirt and a little definition great if you like it like a little little boomier and a little warmer flats kind of thing that's also fine your your front of house guy isn't going to throw you know his beer at you for stuff in, in in what feels like a pretty wide range it was pretty trying for me to go from that kind of vibe. I was like oh I, I like my tone and that seems fine front of house guys happy nobody has any complaints to no 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 it needs to be exactly like this we want to we want to reproduce this thing specifically because playing especially more modern pop it's really interesting what has begun to happen to bass guitar as it tries to find a new role fitting around these huge subsets mm -hmm. that are that are programmed or being played by somebody else on stage and so your approach needs to shift so i've said before it's like on some songs it feels like i'm playing rhythm guitar i'm playing mm -hmm. up high maybe above the 12th fret with a pick with a, a fairly dirty tone and i'm mainly adding sort of articulation and rhythm because all that low fundamental stuff is taken care of so it was really interesting to sort of bop and weave around that kind of stuff from song to song. So some songs are, this is my tone, I like it, this is our arrangement, a new imagining of a song we've played a couple of times before, and to flip from that to, this is the exact part, the exact tone. It took me back to my days of playing classical, where like there's a part, and it's not about what you think you should be doing, it's about slotting in, doing exactly what's in front of you, because that's the only thing that makes sense in this very complicated context in which you're playing. You can't just sort of decide to do this note because the violas are playing that. You can't lay out here because the cellos aren't in either and that's going to sound bad, you know, like that kind of stuff. So it took me back to that. Um, the muscles that we all built, or I'll just speak for myself, that I built during our preparation and rehearsal were what I relied on when we got news that we would be hosting Mary J. Blige or Tove Lo or Lord or, oh my gosh, you know, yeah, we had, we had a lot of them back, uh, Justin Timberlake, it was such a it was really invigorating for me musically because the, the the range was so wide. We played you know, we played Goodbye Earl with Natalie Maines from the Dixie Chicks. I think the same night we played You Ought to Know with Alanis Morissette. Like talk about different approaches to bass playing. So it's it it put me much much more into being fussy about my tone in ways that I feel like were helpful. So like for you know for. The Alanis Morissette song, for example, it's like, well, that's I know I know that was Flea on the on the track. What, how does Flea play? What kind of basses does he play? So I, I use my Yamaha BB with the bridge pickup soloed, and I just played as hard as I possibly could because I know his his attack is heavy, it's aggressive. He's a guy that plays with a lot of intent. He was another early hero of mine because of how much his bass playing stuck out. That's another thing I've had to walk back certainly over the years is the the Flea kind of like I'm in the band so I can do whatever I want approach I've had to kind of dial that back but it was really nice to have just come out of a season where we're fussing over 
compression ratios and tone and, the, and you'd hear well there's a little too much 2k in that or that's i think the compressions you can we side chain that to the you know like you're in it we're really engineering and building tone by tone so it was a little easier to get you know family affair by mary j blige and be like okay i think i understand what i'm going to need to do for this so i could at least start with i know what bass i'm going to going to reach for i know how i'm going to set the onboard eq i know what my physical approach to playing is going to be just to have more more directions to to find where i was supposed to go that was and and then you could get and then after all that was done you can get started trying to get inside the mind of whoever was playing bass on the track and it was everyone from you know justin meldel johnson on beck stuff to i I don't know the guy i'm afraid i don't know the guy who plays in mary j blige's band that guy is a monster and trying to figure out what he was doing and do my version of what he was up to if she sent you a live version i'm sure you had your work cut out for you i did i did and that's that's the other part that was that was tough and exciting at the same time is in order to to make the artist as comfortable as possible because they would come in and we'd do the song a couple of times with them at soundcheck and then it's you know, ready to do, ready to go at showtime. So, mm-hmm. we don't have a lot of time to talk through things with the artists. Their time's very valuable. These are you know extremely famous people. Yeah. So we got ahead of that because our uh, David, our musical director, would we we'd get the album tracks. Like here, here's the parts, here's the thing, and then here's a YouTube of the most current live version that we can find. So you wanted the artist to be like, okay, cool. This is this is exactly what I'm used to. Or we just tell them. We're doing your last tour version or the version you did on Ellen two weeks ago, something like that. So, and it answered a lot of questions for us and saved time with the artist as well, because you don't have to ask, oh, you know, we now know when you do it live, the bridge is twice as long, or you don't double the chorus the last time, or it's down a half step. Like all those questions have been answered already. So, but the other side of that that made it difficult for me is, yeah, now I'm listening, not, not the, you know, maybe the programmed part or the nice and laid back, you know, studio part. Now I'm listening to whoever whoever got the gig to play with Mary J. Blige live doing his thing on a fairly extended version of Family Affair. And that was that was a that was a bunch of lessons all wrapped up in one. I loved that guy's playing. It's very different from where I come from. That's a, it's kind of a missing piece for me in my bass playing is I never got into R and B, especially the more modern um, so aggressive acrobatic kind of like the last bastion of slap. Like that like R and B and gospel is the only yeah. place it still lives. It is, and it's interesting how a lot of those guys, in my opinion, the world-class ones are world-class, and they have those gigs because they can fill every 16th note with noise. They play everything they hear in their head mm-hmm. with no fear that the artist they're accompanying will yeah. think they're overplaying, <laughs> and yet they're playing music. Oh, yeah. And, and, they're, and because of the sort of the... Because in rock, pardon my interruption, yeah, in rock, if that happens... It, it instantly sounds like overplaying. Mm-hmm. But in funk, R&B, modern gospel, that overplaying, when done right on bass, still sounds like music. Yeah. Me. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, not at all. What I was going to say that, like, when, when, especially as a musician, when you think, like, gospel drumming, what do you think of? It's super active. It kind of draws a lot of attention to itself. It's really acrobatic. The drums are, even to, to my ears, tuned in a way to really push them forward in the mix. So there's, there's a great energy about music like that where it's kind of like everybody's elbowing the way to the front. And that's cool. I like that. I like that sort of, sort of that visceral, sort of, everybody's playing hard. It's like, it's like everyone at the top of their ability the whole time and it still sounds good. Everybody's still got their ears on the song. And maybe it's just like there's, maybe gospel has to have so many chord changes so everybody will calm down a little bit. Like 
if it was two chords, it would just be a nightmare. So there's a ton of, you know, jazz progressions and substitutions to calm everybody down because they have to keep their place in the, in the song. But yeah, so, so trying to get inside those guys' heads, uh, man, probably the most challenging for me in a weird way was, so Justin Timberlake came out, we did Mirrors. Um, pretty, pretty straightforward, kind of a synth bass line. And what we decided to do was to take, this, uh, so, so I'll, I'll be honest and say, so I'm, I'm a very fledgling synth bass player. Something mm -hmm. I learned to do for this last tour, I stopped just short of writing the names of the notes on the keys. I was like, I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna actually go, I'm gonna learn the keyboard and get down to it, some two hand parts, but it was very new to me. So uh, the synth part on his live version is Adam Blackstone, and he's you know just another one of those guys, just a monster, plays on everything, and yeah. he should. He's so good. He's great at great at synth. He's great at bass, and it was really active and very cool. And I had a very uh, honest conversation with my MD, where I was like, man, even given the time we had, you know, a month, maybe it's like, if that's all I do, I could probably get it, and I'll probably still hit some pr pretty serious clams when we get down to doing it. So what we decided to do was fly in Adam's synth bass track and have me play electric over top of it. Like transcribe the entire thing and play along with it. So it was sort of real time octave pedal, more or less, in some, or just, or again, sort of that idea of adding distinction and attack to something where the low, low fundamentals were taken care of. And that took, that took probably as long as it would have just to learn how to play it on synth. But to do every fill and to try to match his feel and to make it make sense for two bass players to be playing at once, that was a lot of fun and it was extremely challenging. Going back to the whole thing, how you keep a gig, I think you just answered it the best by that story. Because oh, okay. here you telling your MD, even if I have a month, I'm not going to do a good job at that. Or I'm not going to be as good as this music requires me to be. Yeah, yeah. And instead of going, nothing's impossible, you looked at the time you had and went... The music is not going to benefit from me having a personal challenge game and trying to up my game super hard and, and maybe pulling it off. It's more important that the music sounds right mm -hmm. than me getting that satisfaction of maybe pulling it off. Sure. That's being humble and smart as fuck to me. Oh, thanks, man. You know, that's how you keep the gig because you put the music before yourself in that case. I'm sure playing electric bass over it was a shit ton of fun. Oh, right? so fun. Yeah, I just... Just even like the the way like I I definitely fall prey to this like as as a bass player a lot of the my go to licks have to do with how they kind of fall under your fingers you know yeah. like the like everybody you know the pentatonic shape everybody uses is is it's 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 one of two things and it's usually this one and that's fine and like and that's a great roadmap to figuring out somebody else's line you can hear your way through it before you ever pick up a bass it was super challenging to ape a synth bass part that doesn't fall prey to any of that so a fill could be anything you know because it's you don't you're not necessarily worried about where the notes fall under your fingers on a stringed instrument tuned in fourths because there's sort of rules and things that it you know that it or idioms that it tends to follow and it was really fun to try to get that kind of playing under my hands that was fun because that sort of pulled me out of the out of a couple of ruts that i'd gotten into so try to transcribe some of adam's fills his key bass fills and try to incorporate those into my electric playing, no matter how they look to play on the fretboard. Oh yeah, they they don't fit on a fretboard at all. No, not at all. Yeah, yeah. It's it's. I like I like playing. Honestly, I like figuring out bluegrass heads for the same reason, because they're those are those are fiddle and mandolin. So most of them. So so they're based on something tuned in fifths. So now you have to you know 
stretch your positioning out a little bit or get kind of creative with your fingering. I like I like doing that kind of stuff because it's a bit of a curveball. And yeah. I, I get tired of the same old licks I play every time. because these things are turn into what they turn into but in the only previous episode when I was uh, at Jim Mayer's house from Jimmy Buffett's band Jim Mayer's into his 50s has played bass professionally full time since he was 16 or 17 oh years gosh. old and he comes from a very serious bebop jazz background oh wow okay so the, the ability and the musicality in the guy is nuts now he plays margarita for a living <laughs> and <laughs> so you know, you want to do giant steps? Yeah, he does that in his sleep too. Right. But I, to be funny, I, I threw this on him right in the middle of the podcast last time. I said, would you mind playing Margaritaville? Just okay. by itself, right? All right, yeah. To him. So I think it'd be fun. And I know you don't have any loops program or any drums yeah, to lean on. Yeah, no, nothing. But anything that you're playing, uh, maybe a verse or a chorus, anything that you love the bass part to that you can... Maybe play for us. For oh, the of the Taylor songs. Uh, sure. Yeah, let me, let me think a little bit. Gonna get a pick because it's probably gonna require that. I like I like the I like the uh, I like springing it on me. I actually do. So wh one of the again one of the things that I that I love so much about about playing for Taylor is and it's it's more I usually I, I shouldn't be but I always feel like I surprise people when I tell them that I'm very satisfied musically as a bass player. I think people assume it's. You know, it's, well, it's pop. Pop's easy. First of all, you haven't played pop in a long time. Pop's hard, or it's interesting at the very least. Right, you're playing so fun. Or you, I mean, even if you're like, man, probably it actually takes me back to playing Mirrors with Justin Timberlake because I was like, I'm playing half notes and they have to be funky. Like that, there was a lot of detail work to try to go into that. But one of the things that I love is that there there are there are songs that she's got to play. You know what I mean? Like, like hits from past records. She likes to, the set list is almost always the new record and then some, you know, some other hits, which I think is great and it's audacious. And it's sort of the Louis C.K. style. Like you, you do the hour and you throw it away and you never do it again. And then you just keep creating and keep pushing. So we did uh, a song called I Knew You Were Trouble on the 1989 tour that we ended up rearranging pretty heavily from the record. You know, the record is just, you know, kind of that thing. So our, our MD came up with this great That yeah. one was a lot of fun. Like Yeah. It, even this Sl sliding fifth. Yeah, yeah, that our, our MD was I mean, he sent me a couple of birthday presents and that was one of them. He's like, man, can you do and he just played it on his keyboard. Is that, is that possible? I was like, I will make it possible. And then when you when you hear it on an electric bass with a pick and you mm -hmm. know, fret noise, it, oh, yeah. it, it becomes obvious why key ba bass can't do any, everything. Right? Exactly. Yeah, no, it's like like anything else, it's absolutely got its place. In the recording scene in Nashville, kind of a tubbier, more old school sound, even on modern country records that have loops and synth bass and mm -hmm. stuff. The electric yeah. bass, a lot of guys here still rely on a kind of a tubbier tone. Yes. I know uh, Getty Lee changes strings for every show I hear. Uh-huh. I love the sound of new strings personally. I love all those overtones. More live than in the studio, but even in the studio. Mm -hmm. And 
I'm not saying I'm, I have clean hands, but I apparently don't have acidic hands. So oh, right. Hands yeah. My strings last a long time. But how are you with string changing on the road or your tech, rather? Are you a new string guy or a few shows for each? Or I, I just kind of call it like I see it yeah. usually. Um, yeah, my, my relationship with my tech is usually, I was like, I'll let you know. Yeah. Because, I mean, sometimes you get, like, I, I like that too. I like that stringy, yeah. bright thing. But de- depending on the strings you're using, it could be a little bit tacky. Yeah. Right out of the box. Yeah. Don't necessarily like that, that feeling of getting hung up. So, like, halfway yeah. through the first show, I'm like, ah, there we go. Like, yeah. there's just enough sweat on it. Yeah. And I also, um, I apologize, this is a humble brag, but I change bases a lot mm-hmm. during the show. So, I think the most, uh, on this last tour, the most I played any one bass was two songs. Wow. Maybe three if we had a guest artist and that was the one I was using. So so the strings tend to last. I, I also like I like it bright. I like it attacky. Um, my my favorite bass tones of all time are either Rex's on Vulgar Display of Power or Billy Gould's on Faith No More is the real thing. I, again, something where it's kind of elbowing its way to, a, to the front. You can hear string noise. You can hear you know the frets and the fingers move i just like that i like that sort of articulation so i, I tend to like newer strings yeah. I, I favor round wounds on almost everything i have a couple of bases that have flats on i have a p bass with flats and a jack cassidy and a yeah. weird old hollow body short scale that's great and i that the the hollow body i probably use to record more than anything because it does big boomy and round and that's mostly what it calls for but when it doesn't call for that i yeah. really like that articulation and you can Somebody down the line can compress or dial that out at their leisure, but I like it. I love how it sounds. This is your business board. This correct? is a business board, yeah. So you don't have all your compressors on here. I have I have the Cali seventy six on here, which, which I don't I don't know if you want me to change anything, but that's, I'm not coming through that to the no amp. One okay. thing I I completely loved at the clinic here in town was you showed how to use compression as an effect mm-hmm. as an artistic tool more than a necessity to do a utilitarian compression job yeah yeah even if we can't show people i really would like it if you could tell our listeners a little bit how you do that because i was very inspired by it oh cool thanks man I'll, I'll try to try to recreate as much of it as i can remember uh, man compressors are one of those things i don't i can't think of a, any kind of good analogy it's like there it's on I remember I was I was trying to explain like the concept. I was boring some poor soul who wasn't a musician. I was like, "Oh, it's this effect, and it does this." And I was trying to explain what it does as far as the dynamics are concerned. And they're like, "Is this something I've heard uh, that I would have heard pretty often?" I'm like, "Probably every track of every song you've ever heard has it either on the final mix or individually or whatever. So it's it's ubiquitous, and it's really interesting to get into because it can absolutely be this." sort of peak smoothing thing that you barely notice and transparency is what you're after and you don't want to see it working you don't want to hear it working or you can crush what you're doing you know any, anything all the way to using it as a complete effect I had a, an MXR the little M87 bass compressor that I loved and I found that if you absolutely slammed it going in like just the meters in the red the entire time it distorted a little bit in this very interesting way. It had kind of this, it wasn't a growl, it was more of a purr than anything. And there, it was the last time through the big finish, thank you, good night thing with Taylor, or my tech would kick it on just as this, we, we'd run an octave into it and just crush it infinitely. And it was just so interesting to hear what it did to the sound, how it kind of mangled it, but in the coolest way, the same way distortion is something that is nominally something you're not supposed to be hearing, but of course you could use it to yeah. this tremendous effect. 
So, what, man, when I use compression, uh, yeah, I use it in one of two ways, as sort of a smoothing, fattening kind of thing, where maybe only the, only the peaks are going over, and I have a, you know, I have a Cali 76 that has one of the upgraded transformers, and I like the sort of bloom it brings to the sound, but it's also really fun to jackhammer into that with a pick and to hear it squashing what you're doing. So that, to me, that gives you closer to like the Doug Pinnock kind of thing where you can, yeah. there's so there's so much muscle behind what you're doing and you, you can hear and feel this interplay between the intensity and intent of the note strike and then the, the, the tension and reaction of the compressor to try to control it. And I love how that sounds. I love that kind of rowdy feel to especially bass as somebody who favors it as as bright and as present as i do but i yeah i, I like using it yeah basically in, in one of two ways it can be kind of a kind of a scalpel or a paintbrush yeah. depending on on how you have it set and it's, i mean just messing around with it man is is, is most of the is most of the the trick to it to kind of finish up and bring us back from history and and where you've been and where you've recently been and where you started what what kind of uh what kind of music are you listening to right now? I know, I know that you're doing quite a few of the same things in Nashville here as, as I've been doing in the winter, where we all get together and play for fun, and it's uh -huh. usually a theme. Yeah. Like we played a thrash metal night recently. Yes, we did. And you played a Jeff Beck night last night. Yes, I did. So is your listening to music very uh, professional-oriented, or are you a uh, fan and you listen to it in the gym, or is there any, any secret musical tips? Not bass player related at all, just a music fan? Oh, man. Um, yeah, no, the this, this stuff I've been getting into recently is... is I'm, I'm glad to say it's, it's pretty diverse. It's anything from trying to keep pace with what the kids are into these days. So, you know, occasionally when we're making dinner, we'll just put on the, the, the top 40, what's going on right now. And there's... Some, some of it isn't to my taste, but there's always something that that grabs me if it's just like a, a chord movement uh the new alessia cara and zed song god it's good stay or all i had to do is stay that one the chorus yes and the vocal treatment on the chorus first time i heard it i got goosebumps yeah I'm like, it's not because it's sensitive it's just it made a sound i hadn't heard even though it's not a completely new thing i love it yeah that's you know just even just that that kind of movement i, I really dug that uh, kind of freaked out over the 1975's new record. Uh, it was a little sleepier than than I thought it was going to be, but that that the tune of there is called the sound. That's just it's so boisterous and I I, I feel like the, the lyrics are a little cynical, but the song just sounds like the closing credits of a John Hughes movie. Have you seen the video? No, I haven't. It's, it's even more cynical. Even uh, we'll watch it when we're done. Yeah, <laughs> I'm obsessed with that record. I went to see him recently. Oh yeah, the sound I listen to. It's like twice on my gym playlist, like yeah. the top and then again. Oh yeah. And then the other song of that record, uh, uh, she's she's American. She's American, yeah. Which features like the most glorious, in addition to the lyric writing, which I find astounding for such a young dude. Yeah. Um, the guitar sounds to get in nerd land. It's like for those of us old enough to like grow up on like Tears for Fears and that really uh, slick eighties core, super compressed guitar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sheen. You know, when yes. you Sheen in rock and roll? Yeah. 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 That, uh, that was the other, uh, Love Me. Yeah. That's a, that's a great sort of David Bowie light kind of dance thing. Yeah. I mean, that guy's, they're just, they're so bratty. I love it. It's just, it's just winks and sneers the whole way through. And I, I love that. Um, 
I'll, kind of on the other end of things, I've fallen absolutely in love with Sturgill Simpson, like everyone else in Nashville. Sailor's Guide to Earth is just such a triumph of a record. So, so warm and so, it just feels like guys in a room. You know, because like, it's great because I'm, I'm, I'm a kind of a Beatles guy. I like stuff that's been fussed over and, and interesting chord movements. And so, yeah, we spent a day dialing in the compression on the kick drum. And, and then I love the idea that it's like guys in a room making music and that's the take we want to use. This one that might have a couple of hairs on it, but it just feels uh, intimate and, and like a private thing you're being allowed to listen to. And I love how that record sounds. I love how how odd his vocal is sometimes, how it kind of swims around intonation-wise, but that's sort of perfect. Yeah, it really does it for me. On top of that, I think you and I were talking about this. I've been circling back and like, honestly, woodshedding the bass line to Hit Me Baby one more time just going nuts with trying to really do that the way I mean, it might have even been Max on the record. You having to deal with having to deal with made it sound like it was a chore. Um, <laughs> Max Martin's uh, production yes. uh, up close for your gig. I love a lot of the stuff he's done with other artists including your boss but some of his most brilliant stuff he did in his early 20s to this day. Oh yeah. Uh, as a bass player even the few things of live bass on there It is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I oh was yeah. Hopping on your train and agreeing with everything. Fellow oh, pop, man. Fellow metalheads gone pop. Dude, it's it's. <laughs> <laughs> you can resist if you want. Yeah. But that, I mean, I think that that speaks to a bigger thing, which is a a mistake for me when we were talking earlier about how insular my my metal days were. That's certainly a weakness, and that's certainly something that I've had to overcome and go back and get bits of things that were going on that were on the radio, that it would have, would have certain, I mean, I don't know. I, you can only be who you are in the moment. But that, that's another bit of advice is, is just listen and love as much as you possibly can. Like fall in love with even an artist that you don't like. Like there's, there's something in the song that you as a bass player, musician, whatever it is, can certainly learn from. Just li listen to, you know, and what's, what's fun for me to do occasionally is to try to stay sharp because of what a, Crucible, you know, this last tour was with all the guest stars and stuff like that. I'll I'll listen to a song like Hit Me Baby one more time and be like, all right, pretend pretend you're backing up Britney Spears tonight, playing that song. And go and get to get to work, learn the part, try to ape the tone as much as I can. Like like that's that's a that's a great example of a great use of compression. Yeah, just listen to the bass line and hit me baby one more time where when you're Like that, that has a nice, even but you're going to make that, that pops coming and you have to be able to set your thing in a, your, your compressor or your tone in a way that doesn't peak. It doesn't, because it doesn't leap out too much. It's there and you could hear it, but that's a, that's a great sort of clinic in dynamics. Can you get the pop from hit me baby one more time to sit level wise where you want it to and adjust your threshold and your ratio and your tone and all that kind of stuff. But there's man, there's something there. So maybe if you if you roll your eyes at an artist's public persona or lyrical content or anything or hairstyle or whatever it is, find an excuse to fall in love with something that they're doing. And so you when you fall in love with something, you can learn from it. You will learn from it. You can't help it. It's fitting that you were discussing a very pop thing, which is the marriage and synergy of different bass tones, where one can take precedent over the other yeah. in pop music. Because that literally 
as a fan, apparently, that's what you're into right now, and that's also what you do. Yeah. At at work. So. Yeah. That's all. That's a, the best advice from the best guy to give it. I think. Oh, so. thanks, man. Thanks so much for uh, letting us in. We had Jack Hammers on the outside and vacuum cleaners on the inside. <laughs> but we talked about bass. Thanks so much, Amos. Thanks for having me. Bye, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning into this second installment of the Lowdown Society podcast. I really appreciate you guys tuning in, and I appreciate you guys helping me spread the word to anyone who might be interested in checking this out. Until next time, stay funky, stay low, and I'll see you right back here at the Lowdown Society podcast. Mm-hmm.